Chapter Fourteen of Hands of Iceland by Victor Hugo, translated by Abby Langdon Alger. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sonia. Chapter Fourteen. The monk at midnight visiting the cross, the knight taming his fiery steed, the man who with dread sound of trumpet dies, and he who dies with peaceful voice of prayer, are all the objects of thy care, lavished alike on every pious soul whether he tonja wear or helm him to st anselm yes master we really owe a pilgrimage to linra's grotto who would have thought that the hermit whom i cursed as if he had been the devil would prove to be our guardian angel and that the sword which seemed to threaten our very lives would serve for a bridge to take us over the abyss it was in these somewhat grotesquely figurative terms that Benignus Biagodry poured into Ordener's ears his joy, his admiration, and his gratitude for the mysterious monk. As will readily be supposed, our two travellers had left the cursed tower. Nay, when we again encounter them, they have even left the village of Vigla far behind them, and are painfully pursuing a steep path, interrupted by frequent pools or blocked by huge stones, which transient torrents caused by storms had washed down from the wet, sticky soil. They had not yet dawned, but the bushes growing above the rocks on either side of the road stood out against the clear sky like dark silhouettes, and various objects, although still colourless, gradually assumed form in the dim dull light which daybreak in the north filters through the chill fogs of early morning. Ordener was silent, for he had yielded to that somnolent state sometimes permitted by the mechanical motion of walking. He had not slept since the night before, when he allowed himself to rest in a fishing boat moored in Trondheim harbour for the few hours intervening between his departure from the Splagest and his arrival at Munkholm. Accordingly, while his body moved towards Skongen, his spirit had flown back to Trondheim Fjord, to that gloomy prison and those melancholy towers which contained the only being on earth to whom he attached any idea of hope and happiness. Awake, thoughts of his Ethel filled his mind. Asleep, her memory became a fanciful image which irradiated all his dreams. In this second life of sleep, where for a time the soul alone exists, and the physical being with all its material ill seems to disappear, he saw the beloved maiden no more beautiful, no purer than in reality, but happier, freer, more wholly his own. Only upon the road to Skongen, the oblivion of his body, the torpor of his senses, could not be complete, for from time to time a bog, a stone, the branch of a tree impeding his progress recalled him suddenly from the ideal to the real he would then raise his head half open his drowsy eyes and regret the fall from bright celestial wanderings to his painful earthly journey where nothing could compensate for his lost illusions save that he felt close to his heart the ringlet which was his until ethel herself should be his own then this memory revived the charming dream image and he gently relapsed, not into slumber, but into a vague, persistent reverie. "'Master,' repeated Spiagodry in a louder tone, which, combined with a blow from the trunk of a tree, aroused Ordner. "'Fear nothing. The bowmen turned to the right with the hermit when they left the tower, and we are far enough away from them to venture to speak. It is true that silence was most prudent until now.' <sighs> "'Indeed,' said Ordner, yawning, you push your prudence to extremes. It is at least three hours since we left the tower and the bowmen behind us. That is true, sir, but prudence never does any harm. Only think if I had declared myself when the chief of that infernal troop asked for Benignus Biagodry, 
in a voice like that of saturn calling for his newborn son that he might devour him suppose even i had not taken refuge in a prudent silence at that awful moment where should i be now noble master faith old man i fancy that at that moment nothing not even pincers could have drawn your name from you was i wrong master if i had spoken the monk may saint auspicious and saint Aspel the solitary bless him the monk would have had no opportunity to ask the captain of the archers whether his men did not belong to the munkholm regiment a trifling question merely asked in order to gain time did you notice sir after that stupid archer answered yes with what a peculiar smile the monk requested him to follow him saying that he knew the hiding-place of the fugitive benignus biagodry here the keeper paused for a moment as if to make a fresh start for he suddenly resumed in a voice quivering with emotion a good priest a worthy and upright anchorite practising the principles of christian virtue and evangelic charity and i was alarmed at his mere outward appearance forbidding enough truly but what a beautiful soul lies beneath did you notice too noble master that there was something peculiar in the tone with which he said to me we shall meet again as he led away the archers at any other time that tone would have alarmed me but it is not the pious and excellent hermit's fault a solitude undoubtedly gives that strange intonation for i know sir here the voice of benignus sank lower i know another hermit that dreadful fellow who but no out of respect for the venerable hermit of linras i will not make so odious a comparison neither was there anything peculiar about his gloves it is quite cold enough to wear them and his salty beverage does not surprise me either catholic anchorites often follow singular examples the very same thing master is alluded to in this line by the famous urensius the monk of mount caucasus vivos despiciens maris undam potat amaram why didn't i think of that verse while i was in that confounded ruin at vigla a little better memory would have spared me much needless alarm to be sure it is not easy is it sir to collect your thoughts in such a den seated at the table of a hangman a hangman a creature given over to universal scorn and execration who only differs from an assassin in the frequency and impunity of his murders whose heart to all the atrocity of the most awful brigands unites the cowardice of which at least their daring crimes do not admit a being who offers food and drink with the same hand that wields the instruments of torture and crushes the bones of his miserable victims between the planks of the wreck think of breathing the same air with a hangman and the vilest beggar if polluted by his loathsome touch would cast aside with horror the last rags which protected his nakedness and his disease from the wintry blast and the chancellor after sealing his commission flings the paper under the table in token of his malediction and his disgust and in france when the hangman dies in his turn the provost's assistants would rather pay a fine of forty pounds than succeed him and at pest when churchy was condemned to die and they offered to pardon him if he would turn executioner he preferred death to such a trade is it not still notorious noble sir that turmerin bishop of maastricht ordered a church to be purified because the hangman had entered it and that Tsarina petrovna washed her face whenever she witnessed an execution you know also that the kings of france to honour warriors permit them to be punished by their comrades so that these brave men even if they be criminals may not be made infamous by contact with the hangman and finally which is decisive in the descent of st george into hell 
by the learned Melasius Itterham, does not Sharon give the robber, Robin Hood, precedence over the hangman, Philip Cress? Truly, master, if I ever attain to power, which God alone can foresee, I shall put down hangman and restore the ancient custom and the ancient tariff. For the murder of a prince, a man shall pay, as in 1150, 1440 double crown pieces. For the murder of a count, 1440 plain crowns. For that of a baron, 1440 half crowns. The killing of a mere noble shall be rated at 1440 escalins, and that of a citizen. Don't I hear the tread of a horse coming toward us? interrupted Ordener. They looked back and as they had dawned during spiagudry's long soliloquy they could distinguish a hundred paces behind them a man dressed in black waving one hand to them and with the other urging on one of those small dingy white ponies so often seen either wild or domesticated in the lower mountain ranges of norway oh for mercy's sake master said the timid keeper let us hasten that black fellow looks to me just like an archer what old man we are two and we should fly before a single man alas twenty sparrows fly before an owl what glory is there in waiting for an officer of the law and who tells you that this is one rejoined ordener whose eyes were not blinded by fear keep up your courage my valiant guide i recognize this traveller let us wait for him the keeper was forced to submit a moment later the horseman came up with them and spiagudry ceased to tremble when he saw the grave calm face of the chaplain athanasius munder the latter greeted them with a smile and trained in his steed, saying in an almost breathless voice, My dear children, it is for your sake that I retrace my steps, and the Lord will surely not permit my absence, prolonged with a charitable intent, to injure those who sorely need my presence. Sir Minister, answered Ordener, we shall be happy to aid you in any way we can. On the contrary, it is I, noble young man, who desire to serve you. Will you deign to tell me the object of your journey? Reverend sir, I cannot. All I ask, my son, is that your refusal may proceed from inability and not from distrust. If not, I am indeed unhappy. Unhappy is he whom the good man distrusts, even if he have seen him but once. The priest's modesty and unction touched Ordener deeply. All that I can tell you, father, is that we are bound to the mountains of the north. So I thought, my son and that is why I followed you. There are bands of roving hunters and miners in those mountains who might injure travellers. What then? Well, I know that it is useless to dissuade a noble young man in search of adventure, but the esteem I feel for you inspires me with another plan for helping you. The unfortunate counterfeiter to whom I bore the last consolations of religion yesterday was a miner. Just before he died he gave me a paper inscribed with his name, saying that this passport would protect me from all danger if I ever had to travel among those mountains. Alas, what can it avail a poor priest who must live and die among prisoners, and who, moreover, inter castra latronum, should seek no other defence than patience and prayer, the only weapons of God? I did not decline the pass, because we should never distress by refusal the heart of one who in a few minutes more will have nothing to receive or to give on earth. The good God deigned to inspire me, for now I can offer you this parchment, that it may go with you in all the perils of your journey, and that the gift of the dying man may benefit the traveller. Ordner accepted the old priest's gift with emotion. Sir Chaplain, said he, God grant that your prayer may be heard. Thank you. But... 
he added, laying his hand on his sword, I already carry my passport at my side. Young man, said the priest, that poor parchment may perhaps protect you better than your steel blade. The gaze of a penitent man is more potent than the archangel's sword. Farewell, my prisoners await me. Pray sometimes for them and me. Holy priest, rejoined Ordener with a smile, I told you that your prisoners should be pardoned, and they shall be. Oh, do not speak with such assurance, my son. Do not tempt the Lord. No man can know what passes in the mind of another, and you cannot tell what the viceroy's son may decide to do. Perhaps, alas, he will never condescend to admit a humble chaplain to his presence. Farewell, my son. May your journey be blessed, and may you sometimes remember the poor priest and pray for his unhappy prisoners. End of chapter 14